recording. Okay. Um, hey, everyone, and welcome to the Bible Bitches podcast, where we talk about biblical and religious topics from a feminist comedic perspective. And I'm here with the one Sarah Ha, who is the awesome agnostic over in LA. What you doing over there? Right now? Yeah. Right, right at this moment, I am... Uh, alternating between coffee and a uh, vodka soda like it's taste. a really good it's a really good taste pairing they really highlight the nuanced flavors of one another how y'all doing over there doing pretty good I am Lara Barclay I'm a Baptist minister and I'm hanging out here in Louisville Kentucky and I am with the one Derek Pinwell uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself Derek sure uh, my name is Derek Penwell, and I'm the senior minister at Douglas Boulevard Christian Church, which is Disciples of Christ Congregation. I've been there for a little over 11 years now, and um, I also teach in the Religious Studies program at the University of Louisville. In my off, in my off hours, uh, wrangle pets, dogs, and a pig. And Ooh, a pig. You have a pig. That's awesome. Penelope. And she gets... It's after the Chihuahuas, <laughs> and she and the 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 English Mastiff, they you got to keep them in yeah. corners. Yeah. Nice. It sounds like a proper zoo. I like it. it is. I love it. Do you live on a farm? How do you have space for a pig? Oh, she stays in the kitchen. Are you for real? For real? Uh, yeah. She's an she's an indoor pig. She is. That's amazing. Is she house is she housebroken? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. So cool. she's, she's the smartest animal we have. So cool. Yeah, no, she stays in a cage because no, like, enclosure other than something that you latch will keep her where you don't, where, where you want her to be because she's, she's just, she can break through anything. And then when she gets out of the house, then things can go bad quickly. So I'm inviting myself over to your house. Sure, come okay. on. <laughs> What, uh, what, like, what made you guys be like, you know what, a pig seems like a good pet? See, um, I never said that, actually. <laughs> uh, when my daughter wanted a pig, I said, no, absolutely not. That's a, that's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, for all these reasons, you're going to move out, and I'm going to be stuck with this pig, mm -hmm. and I'm going to wind up having to take care of, no, 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 no I'll, I'll do everything I'll take with me is my pig, it'll be my baby. And so I said, no, I, I do not want a pig. So I went, I was on sabbatical and I went to Italy and I came back and found out we had a pig. <laughs> oh, you got, you got like outvoted. I did. Uh, yeah, it was, it was not a high point of my <laughs> self-esteem. <laughs> so seriously voted down by my wife and daughter. But. And my daughter got married and moved out and... And I said, have you taken the pig with you? And she said, hell no. Well, no why would I do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we're definitely going to need a pic of that pig. Um, so Derek has recently come out with a really awesome book called Outlandish, An Unlikely Messiah, A Messy Ministry, and The Call to Mobilize. And so we got really excited about this book and we wanted to uh, talk a little bit about it um, because it uh, actually hit number one on uh, Amazon under New Testament studies. So congratulations. Thank you. 
Yeah. And so because it was, it was number one new releases. New releases. It was number yeah. three at one point for like fourteen seconds. Very cool. But, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Who's counting? Not you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, this has a lot to do with Jesus's identity. And so we wanted to talk a little bit today about um, Jesus as Messiah, teacher, and organizer. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about the process for putting this book together and what inspired you to kind of choose this topic? Well, you know, I mean, with the current political landscape as it is informed by what feels like to me kind of selling out uh, of the evangelical faith to a politics that seems really cool and actually anti-Jesus the whole subject of Jesus as um, a as, as, as worthy of study in a different way from what I had grown up learning about him. And uh, that was really sort of the genesis of it, uh, to, to begin to think about what he meant in the world he found himself in. And if you, if you start, if you sort of run through the gospels and think about it, so much of what he did was just really ass backwards. And, 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 and yet, uh, it wound up, even though the, the, the sort of the, the, the cross is the huge failure, um, that, uh, that failure um, paves the way for God's uh, ability to say no to the, to the systems that killed him. And it's good news for us because, because there's so much of, of what people who follow Jesus now sort of expect of themselves in terms of excellence and you know, being relevant and all this kind of stuff. And, 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 and in fact, Jesus just went about everything so oddly that that ought to be good news to us who, as I say, you know, as a sort of pigeon-toed mouth breather, uh, it, it, makes, it makes life so much more hopeful for me to think that Jesus was, um, was not the sort of regular success story that that uh, we think of when we when we think of Jesus with blonde hair and all that yeah he wasn't a surfer dude he was messy he was real messy yes yeah okay so let's get into it a little bit more deeply um, you talk about Jesus and your book as being a kind of the worst teacher um, due to his ability to incite rage from the political and religious elite um, what were teachers like during that time period, and how did Jesus buck the system and become sort of a worse teacher? Well, on the front end, he was a really awful recruiter. Mm. I mean, if you read the, 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 the sort of call narratives in the Gospels, uh, in Matthew and Mark, for example, Jesus goes up to these total strangers and says, hey, you guys should follow me. <laughs> and they say, Okay, and they take off. But I mean, and, and Luke, when he tells the story, he basically has to ha he has this whole thing where Jesus tells them to go out and throw their nets over, and they, you know, have a hard time pulling up. The so it gives a kind of rationale for why somebody would follow him, right? Mm -hmm. Because 
this guy is obviously kind of a miracle worker, whatever. But the other two gospel stories are essentially Jesus recruiting these people in the in this really odd way. The sales pitch is is just really non-existent, frankly. And the very fact that he goes to disciples was a real departure for this time, uh, because a, a any teacher who is worth his and I say his advisedly, um, because males were teachers, mm-hmm. any teacher worth his salt would wait for students to come to him. Because to go to, 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 go to disciples, uh, potential followers, was to admit a kind of neediness mm-hmm. that, that, that mitigated against the very authority we're trying to portray. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so Jesus, um, he, he goes about it in a strange way. And then he goes for the weirdest people, mm-hmm. right? If you're going to sort of start a going concern to change the world, these are not the, I mean, these 12 knuckleheads are, are not typically who you would think. I mean, in your, in your fantasy uh, draft uh, for, for, for people to do this. And, and so he, he, just, he does it strange, which, which I think, as a side note, is, again, really good news for us. Because the message in that is God doesn't need a whole lot of, in the way of raw material to, to do the work that God wants to do. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is, as a, as a teacher, I mean, one of his primary vehicles for, for teaching were parables, mm-hmm. which I think in the church we've sort of always thought as kind of Jesus-y versions of Aesop's fables. Like there's some kind of moral at the end. Mm-hmm. But if you read through the parables, they're really strange, and they're almost all guaranteed not to elicit a, oh, I see what I should do now, right? I mean, it's almost like gets, a Dungeons and Dragons. Like, he's, he's recruited these, uh, like a bunch of dorks, right? Yes. He's recruited a bunch of dorks, and then he's telling, like, you know, this, like, I'm thinking about, like, the parable of a mustard seed, like, you know, you're dropping these mustard seeds, uh, you know, 10 points for growth, like, I don't know, like, I just, for some reason, I've got this image in my head of a bunch of dorks around, like, you know, play. and, and, hey, like massive love. things or something. Right. <laughs> like, there, it's like a bunch of kids in a basement, um, and, and, like, shout out to that, because I, I don't play Dungeons Dragons, but I am a massive nerd, so, um, so it's kind of oddly appealing as you're talking about it, that it's like this, like he's not stodgy. He's not, you know, waiting for people to come to him. He's like, Hey, what up? Yes. And he goes <laughs> out there and, 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 and this is not, I mean, the whole point is if you were going to sort of set up a Zig Ziglar course mm-hmm. right, on how to sell people on the kingdom of God, this is definitely not how nope. you would do it. And, 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 but, but I take that to be good news mm-hmm. because there's so much in my own life that I just do not, I sort of back my way into. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and, the, and the parables themselves are, I argue, uh, they're, they're instances in many cases of subversive speech, right? Because they'll say the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God is like. Well, in the Roman Empire, to say the kingdom of anything other than Caesar is, is to is to evoke a kind of response that's 
automatically hostile, right? Mm -hmm. Because you, you present yourself as a threat, mm -hmm. especially in a world in which, you know, Jesus is sometimes called the son of God. In the Roman Empire, the coins that Caesar had minted had DVF or DV, which is short for DV Filius, son of God. Mm -hmm. So, so there was a kingdom of Rome in which there was already a son of God, and to have somebody come along and talk about this stuff uh, was automatically to to raise the concern of of um, the Roman political military establishment. And so he has to be really careful, right, mm -hmm. how he talks about this stuff. And the parables wind up being, I think, sort of indirect ways of engaging in subversive speech. Mm -hmm. And like the parable of the mustard seed, right? The mustard seed in the ancient Near East was a, was a noxious weed. And, and so Jesus comes along and says, the kingdom of, heaven, uh, the kingdom of God is like uh, mustard seed. Like, it's like kudzu. Mm -hmm. That's not a very flattering, right? <laughs> Sarah, we found a new thing to put on your Tinder profile. <laughs> I'm like Kudzu. I'm like Kudzu. You can't get rid of me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, but, but, but the whole point is to, to offer a different view of um, this reign that God envisions that acts as a kind of counter point to the current kingdom. And, and and which is run with power and oppression and so forth, um, and 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 the kingdom of God is always subversive of those kinds of power arrangements. Mm -hmm. Good point. Yeah. Um. And so, also in your book, you say that Jesus was a horrible Messiah. In fact, like a quote directly is prior to the Babylonian exile, the term Messiah referred to the king, the one who had been anointed as ruler of God's people. During and after the exile, the term began to be used in a more general way, referring to the one whom God raised up to accomplish God's purpose, usually overthrowing the powers of subjugation and occupation. Can you uh, sort of expand on this? Like, uh, how did he miss the mark on this? Well, all right, so... After the Babylonian exile, um, remember from your Old Testament survey or Old Testament introduction days, um, the Persian Empire rises up under Cyrus and overthrows the Babylonians and releases uh, those Judeans who are in exile in Babylon and sends them home. But not only does Cyrus send them home, Cyrus sends them home with a check, right, to rebuild the temple. And so in Isaiah, um, uh, for, in Isaiah 45, 1, Isaiah refers to Cyrus as God's anointed, which in Hebrew is Mashiach, Messiah. And, 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 it, and it comes to be a kind of placeholder for those people whom God raises up to overthrow the political military machine that is oppressing God's people. And so that's what that you know that's when when that's why the disciples get it so wrong right through all through the sort of march to Jerusalem they believe that Jesus is going to be cut from the same cloth as Cyrus or uh, Mattathias Maccabees you know the, these people whom God raises up to uh, sort of 
the groundswell of uh, support from the, the peasants and overthrow these wicked oppressors. And they're really upset. I mean, they're pissed that he turns out not to be that, right? So in that way, he fails to be the Messiah that they want him to be. Um, in fact, you know, the, the whole scene in the garden is that they came armed, right? Everybody came armed, came armed because everybody's convinced that this is where this is going. He had been the kind of Messiah that everybody was expecting, then they would have clashed and there would have been a revolution. But he doesn't do that. So he, he subverts the whole idea of Messiah. But, but, but what he does is he does, in, in Easter, uh, in the resurrection, uh, God essentially says no to those very systems that kill the Messiah. And in, and in so doing, the Messiah prevails, not through force, but through a, a persistent pursuit of justice and, uh, and, and peace, uh, which, which had to be totally frustrating to his friends and completely confounding to his enemies. That kind of makes sense as to why they would have, the disciples would have fled, right? They think the rebellion's over. The political rebellion is at a at a halt. Absolutely. And okay, we've got to flee, or else we're next. Well, yeah, I right. mean, they, Jesus is crucified, which is a Roman capital punishment, which is um, saved for political mm -hmm. insurgents, right. and and they have no reason to believe that they are not as associates next on the list you know they've got a deck of cards right with jesus is the ace of spades everybody else yeah. you know that Peter, and judas has all their names absolutely exactly and it, you know i don't know if you remember this is sort of i don't want to get too far off but you remember the last temptation of christ and he just kazanzakis i don't know if you've ever seen it or read the book but his portrayal of judas is that judas is the one who believes in jesus the most and he he sells Jesus out in order to force Jesus to be who he is sure he's going to be, which is this revolutionary, right? And, and because he's afraid that Jesus is just too kind of wimpy and he's going to put him in a position to have to do that. Um, okay. Also in your, your book, you tell the extraordinary story about a community in France, and I'm going to butcher this, called Le Chambon Solignon. Oh, Le Chambon Solignon. Okay. That sounds cool. It also sounds like a really good dish. <laughs> it does. If I, if I, buttery. yeah, it's got truffles and escargot. All right. Um, so this city, um, under the leadership of the pastor, resisted the Nazis and worked to secretly help many Jews escape to Switzerland. You laid the groundwork there that this is the work that Jesus is calling us to do. I, I'm reading this and I'm thinking it's a very timely argument in the era of Trump and the white supremacy that his regime has emboldened. Does this make Jesus more of a community organizer in your eyes or a freedom fighter? Like, how would you explain his role historically and how that affects our current socio-political landscape? Okay, so I mean, there, there are a couple questions in there. Um, yeah, just a few light questions, no big deal. <laughs> We're talking about Hitler and Jesus and Trump. Vichy France. Yes. yes. <laughs> So what I want to say about Jesus is that he, he fulfills a number of roles. 
Richard Horsley and John Hansen wrote a book called uh, Bandit, Prophet, and Messiah, um, in, which he, in which they talk about what those kinds of things were in the, in, in the ancient Near East. And they make the case that Jesus is a, a messianic figure. There, but there are all kinds of messianic movements, right? And he's also a prophetic. But, but then they make this really interesting case that the bandit, which is often translated robbers or the thieves, right? Between the cross, what's well, it's in Greek it's leste, which which is sort of social bandits, brigands um, who are kind of Robin Hood figures, right? Um, and that that there's a there's a lot of the Venn diagram between Messiah and social bandit is is really um, got a huge slice in the middle, right? Of overlap, and so. Uh, I think he fulfills all those roles. Now, to the extent that he that he moves people, I guess there's a sense in which he's an organizer. But but knowing what we know about community organizers now, I mean, his tactics is are are are, are much different. What I do think, though, is that he fearlessly announces a vision of a new world in which the people who have always been at the back of the bus, get to go sit in the front of the bus. And then everybody who's been, who's taken for granted that their place is up front, have to go to the, to the rear. And, and that's, that's good news for everybody except those people up front. Mm-hmm. Right? If you have a stake in the way things are, then, then, then Jesus is, is a threat. Mm-hmm. And must be done away with. That's and and I think that 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 much of modern culture has done away with that kind of threatening Jesus and domesticated him and made him into a pal and and uh, your buddy who's only wants you to have a new BMW. You know, the Joel Osteen Jesus. That's the one. Yeah. Um, or some very the best version of Jesus is the Joel Osteen version of Jesus. <laughs> right. <laughs> Prosperity yeah. gospel really works, you guys. Yeah, right? It's like if you just pray hard enough, gold will fall in your lap. It's, it totally happens. Yes. For real. <laughs> if you're already white and wealthy, that thing totally happens. I'm right. reorganize <laughs> Right. Didn't uh, Trump tried to put uh, money in the communion plate during, oh, uh, during the election? Um, yeah, it was in the, in the 2016 election cycle. I feel, I feel like that's such a, the Joel Osteen Jesus is such a, such a Trump Jesus in that regard, because it's, it's somebody who's been sort of, you know, people like that that have been born wealthy um, and don't question, how did I, how did I get this? What, who, what privilege do I have? And what's my duty to the, you know, to society? I, I think it's very much like that. This, oh, well, God gave me this. And, you know, if I just pray hard enough, then maybe I get to keep it. And maybe I get to grow my riches, not understanding that that's, that's not how it works. It's just such, so blinded by privilege. Very similar, I kind of think, to how Rome was, right? The status that, that Caesar had, the status that if you even were a Roman citizen, that, that gave you the citizenship of, of being a Roman citizen. Um, versus what you had if you were a Jew and all the things that were tamped down upon you 
at any given moment, how you worshiped, it was, it was kind of a powder keg in, oh my gosh, yes. in Jerusalem. And so there it's, it's there, a lot of oppression, which I kind of think if we're, it's a very different time, a lot, a lot of um, different sort of beliefs and elements, but what's similar that I'm thinking about is this sense of privilege and sort of putting the blinders on to the realities of what the Jewish people were facing at that time. Yes. Well, and I, now, mean, I mean, well, in Roman society was heavily stratified, right? And, and there was no middle class. Mm -hmm. There were a few people at the top of the food chain, in this huge gap. Uh, and down here were peasants and artisans. And uh, the people up top retained their positions of power only by dominating those people at the bottom. Yeah. And what Jesus does is he, he comes along with a message that says, that's not how God intended it. And we're going to take the people who've been on the margins and we're going to put them in the center. That doesn't mean that God doesn't like people who are rich or anything. It just means that this, this world that God envisions has the people who've been forgotten in the middle now for a change mm -hmm. and the people who have taken for granted their whole lives, that that's where they deserve to be, find themselves on the outside. And that's bad news, mm -hmm. right? And what Jesus winds up doing, and that's the whole point of the Le Chambon story, is, is there's this group of people in Vichy, France, who hide Jews, thousands of Jews, and nobody ever drops dime. This is, I mean, this whole community, nobody ever slips up and tells nothing. And, and the question is, how can, you, how can you foster a community capable of resisting the empire? Um, what does it take? Because it would seem you have to produce a whole bunch of heroes. And, and, in, and in philosophy, the, the study of this in moral philosophy has to do with the idea of super arrogation, of going above and beyond. And it's difficult to expect people to go above and beyond. But if, you, if everybody believes that that's just the baseline expectation for behavior, then everybody does it and they say, well, anybody in my place would do the same thing. Well, not anybody would. Mm -hmm. But so how do we make a, a, a community that's capable of saying to the ruling authorities that uh, we're, not going, we're not going to sit idly by and let you trample people um, because that's a necessary thing. And, that's, and, and you're right, I think it is absolutely imperative for the kind of world that we are now inhabiting to, and we even talk about the resistance, right? How is it that we can be active participants, not only in resisting, but in forming communities capable of resisting? So, um, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that. So, to me, it sounds like what like the point of the you're right, like the moral philosophy and like getting people sort of on board to act out justice in a way that they just think is like kind of perfunctory, right? Um, but what I always come back to is this idea of like, how are we defining what justice is? Because, I mean, I would actually say that the religious right is very heavily involved in politics and are very like into 
resistance, resisting like whatever political structures are that be that, that like are against their moral compass. And I'm thinking specifically of like people who are pro-life and anti-LGBT and things like that. Um, and so they're but very like, but it the victim. like it's, well, it's the sense of, but it's also, oh, I have to make a cake for a gay couple. You're, you're treading on my, on my space. Which is yeah. Really and I mean, like, I mean, like, regardless of like the how that they're doing it, because like, yeah, I mean like everything about it is wrong. Like the very, base of it is wrong but the fact still remains is that they are the ones who are out there and are being like politically active and vocal and like doing the thing and like making it a part of their life because they believe so strongly in it and so like how do how do we like re like channel that that passion into um into like a into a social justice that is kinder and more accepting. And then also how can we be sure that the kind and accepting social justice that we seek out now is fully kind? Like how do we, how do we do that to its full ex extent? Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. And I think that's a, I think it's, it's a great question. All protestations to the contrary, notwithstanding, oftentimes the people who yell loudest about not being, mixing religion and politics are really heavily invested in a certain kind of politics. Um, and, and so, you know, if the question is, how do you differentiate between two groups of people who both claim to be pursuing righteousness and justice, um, you know, on the left and the right. And, 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 and the standard that I always apply is justice is, is always looking out for the needs of the most vulnerable. So for example, if you go back in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the, the commandment or some variation of it that gets stated the most over three dozen times of any other thou shalt or any in, in, in all of the Hebrew scriptures is some variation on um, the responsibility of God's people to look after the widow, the orphan, and the stranger in the land, um, who are the three categories of people who are the most vulnerable. So any politics that doesn't place a premium on trying to figure out ways to support and look after the needs of those who can, in many cases can't look after themselves, is is anti, is anti-christ right mm -hmm. um any politics that is about self-aggrandizement mm -hmm. about um retaining power without sacrificing anything for people who don't have it i think is a politics that is, is working against the very sort of thrust of the prophets and the gospels and even i think to a certain extent paul but like um and like i i totally agree i guess my so i um i find myself in these gray areas where i'm just constantly like well but how do you define that but how do you define that because like who in this case is the most vulnerable because like there are plenty of very vulnerable people in our immediate society but are they more vulnerable or more in need than people in other cultures who are like starving to death you know like and so and then so how do you how do you approach that like do we give money 
uh, we don't want to, we don't want to go to another community and colonize them. Right. Um, but are they like, and like, who are we to decide whether or not the other is vulnerable? Like, do they have to reach out to you first to say, Hey, I'm in a vulnerable position or do we reach out to them and say, Hey, you are vulnerable. Like, I don't, I mean, and, Wait, and can I grab that? Is that yeah. yeah. So, uh, so my thought about that is, um, I read a really good book uh, a couple years back called when helping hurts. Um, have you read that? It's so good. Um, and so I, I think what you're saying, like the, you know, the colonizing thing, right. That model is so like it, it very scathingly goes after the old school missions model, which I am Baptist. here. No, absolutely. Oh, I am here for like as an ex Southern Baptist, like let's jump on how bad that is. So for, for me and you know, and I think Derek can address this in our, in our community. Um, I, I think we have, we have a really interesting community in Louisville where I think uh, it's a heavily immigrant community. Yes. Um, it's a very diverse community. Yes. Um, there is, I think there um, are some, are co several really good organizations that are LGBT supportive um, yes. and some really good churches that are um, very inclusive and stand up for LGBT rights. Um, so I, I think um, in our congregation specifically, um, and, you, and you can speak to yours, Derek, at Highland Baptist, we have, I think ours is kind of built on relationships. So let's say somebody comes, you know, is a part of our congregation and there, there's an issue that is raised up of, oh my gosh, this injustice is happening. And somebody that's among us is having an issue or someone in uh, a neighbor church is having some sort of issue. How can we help? Right. So like mm -hmm. there's a, a coalition of churches that come together around like immigrant rights. Um, there are, people, uh, a heavy number of people in our church that are in the LGBT community. Um, so that is, that's something where we ask them, how can we support you? What can we do? Um, what, you know, what, what would be a, a way that we can, you know, walk alongside you and, and lift you up and empower you? So for me, um, the way that I've kind of interpreted that is how can we empower our neighbors? So loving, but also loving means empowering and, and letting that neighbor lead and say, this is what I need. This is what I want. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that has, they have to have this agency for themselves and you can help them, but it has to be the kind of help that they want. Right. No, I think it's really good. I, I have a couple thoughts about that. If you want to hear them. Yeah. Uh, uh, first, I think the name of the game is intersectionality, yeah. right? So um, if you do much justice work, you soon find out that there's not a single issue, right? That they all, that they, they impact one another. Like, for example, if you're, doing, if you're working with the LGBTQ community, I was, I was on the fairness board for years. Um, you, you also bump up against the fact that uh, racially, there are real problems for um, uh, African-American trans, women in particular yep um and and uh lgbtq youth are the most vulnerable in terms of homelessness yes and suicidal ideation and that's su su suicidal ideation absolutely and and, and, you, and you, you start to see that all of these things sort of bleed into each other and 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 that sort of diving in at one point does not cordon you off from the rest of them Right. Why not sort of 
moving you further into the middle of all of it. The second thing I would say is, I talk about it in the book, um, the, the church has typically thought about its responsibility to others in terms of mercy, acts of mercy. So that's what we do, and we're really good at that, right? Um, taking uh, uh, Micah 6.8, right? What does the Lord require of you, O moral, but to be justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God? Well, we do mercy really good. Mm-hmm. So we have clothing closets, we have food pantries, we do all this kind of stuff really well. But there's another requirement about justice, and that's a structural kind of thing. So it's possible to think about how it is that policy in the United States impacts other countries without ever doing the kind of patronizing thing, right? Um, You think about the executive order taking away $500 million from three, um, three Central American countries that are sending, you know, or that, that where many of the people who are migrating and seeking asylum are from, well, there are ways, policy ways, to pursue justice for those people in their own communities that doesn't require us to go and feel like we're saving them. It's, it, it, justice is the matter of doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. It's just doing the right, whether it benefits us or makes us feel good or this is really beside the point. It is. It is our responsibility to do the right thing. And the church is good at mercy, but, it's n- but, it, but it doesn't really often think about justice and how it is that we can move the levers of power uh, to, to affect larger populations in general um, and not just sort of individual people one at a time. And I'm not saying that's not important. It really is important. But, but, but it's possible to think that you're doing all, all you can by giving somebody five bucks to go get a hamburger. That's not bad, but what, you know, how is it that we can make new laws that help people not need $5 for a hamburger? Exactly. They, they don't have to sort of humiliate themselves by having to come up to you and ask for it. That, that's where I think the church has often failed its mission. Mm-hmm. Does, it, does that get at sort of what you're asking about, Sarah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, the questions that I have are not, like, they, they cannot be answered. <laughs> like, well, I also, I, mean, I also feel like, I, I, like, you know, I know it's something that you and I have talked about um, for a long time, and I'm so interested in this, is um, I, I think the questions that you have are more easily answered in community because communities have those varying kinds of relationships. Sure. Um, and I am very interested since you brought, you brought this up to me, I don't know, a year and a half ago about like, what does an agnostic community working for justice look like? Right. I'm very interested in that uh, because I think that there is a huge overlap between what agnostics, um, I, you know, there, I think there's two classes of atheists you know, that would, you know, one, one that's like, hey, whatever would make our world a better place, and then Bill Maher, right? <laughs> the people that are like Bill Maher, who just like hate anyone that's religious. Um, <laughs> it's like, what, right. like, I, I'm interested in what can we agree on, and how can we make the world a better place together? And I think there's a lot of people 
that have, you know, that are agnostics and atheists that would agree with that. Like, how can we stop climate change? How can we stop discrimination? How can we make America a more inclusive place? And I'm very interested in what, uh, what a progressive agnostic community would look like um, that could engage in some of these questions. Um, I think that the, I think that the big challenge for an agnostic community would be what would get you together in the first place, right? What would, right. What, what would get people to, to like chill in the first place? What, what is your experience like in your church? Like what do you, what do you think people are coming for? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, the, the, the largest segment of new people in our church are people who've given up on the church. Mm -hmm. And we have a new sort of subgroup of that, and that is agnostics and mm -hmm. atheists mm -hmm. who like the work that we do mm -hmm. and are seeking community. They don't want to come on Sundays and do all that stuff, but they really like what we do, and they like the people who do, we do it with, mm -hmm. and they want, they want community. Mm -hmm. And when the church does community, they do it really well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and by that I mean being there for one another, fellow travelers, mm -hmm. rather than just sort of being happy together. Um, and, you know, what I say, when I've, I've had conversations just recently, you know, somebody who said, I don't really have the whole God thing figured out, but I really like what you guys do. And I like you guys. Can I sort of, what, what, what do we do with that? And I said, well, just, you know, when we do stuff, you come with us and you just hang out with us. You, you go drink beer with us. Um, and then we'll figure out the other stuff later. But that's not really the, we believe that we're doing this not because uh, by doing it, we will trick people into coming into <laughs> right. church. Right. right? And that's really you can the understand like their concern about that because historically, oh. Both, I think both of us have the same, like, we do, like, Theology on Tap and, like, a bunch of community stuff, and, like, people are like, wait a minute, you're not actually trying to, no, we don't give no, a shit, like, no. just come and hang out, we like you, like, yeah. So, so, yeah. We do, we do, so we've really, you know, it's interesting, Sarah, we, we've really sort of rethought, I don't know, we've intentionally rethought it, but we, we, we've had to rethink our whole idea of membership and leadership, and mm -hmm. also, it's yeah. much, much more fluid than mm -hmm. uh, what I grew up thinking about in terms of committees and you got to walk down at the on the altar call and all that kind of stuff um people just sort of hang around for long enough and we claim them you know yeah. or they claim us the, the other thing that there's like what the other thing no i'm just kind of like i don't know if i agree i, I mean the like what you guys are talking about is is lovely and like yes those church like your churches are great examples of community however by and large like that's not what the like the capital c church is and 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 there are a few like like there are a few like hesitations i have i mean one of it one of the hesitations is just simply the fact that like as a community grows like the larger it gets the more complicated it gets and then like it either it either sort of like uh, fractions or you know like like pulls apart or the rules get real much more like black and white. I would say. Or if you're a Baptist, you just keep splitting. You just keep splitting. <laughs> just like, 
strategy. <laughs> That's and, a good uh, sell the vision. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, I think I think you you're right that I mean there is there is a kind of sociologically there is a limit to the size a community can be. Well, no, I think that sociologically there's a limit to the size that a community in agreement and working towards the same like goals can be. I would say. The question is, to what extent can it be a community if you don't know people's names? Now, um, because because at some point, it's just a collection of strangers, right? Yeah. But but a community is is understandably, I, I think, smaller. But that doesn't mean you can't have a big church with a number of communities that don't have to be competing. I mean, it's possible to say, look, you're this kind of person, right? You care about this. Um, and there's a whole group of people in our church who care about this. And we think that that's awesome because we can't figure out how to care about it. <laughs> so yeah. we're glad you do, right? Yeah. Or, um, and, 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 and to be able to support it. But it takes a great deal of intentionality and it takes a great deal of humility uh, in order to, to make community work because you have to go into it with the idea that it's possible that everything I think is true is not necessarily, it, it is only provisionally true, mm -hmm. right? Until I find out different. And that's, that's, a, that's not something that churches have typically done well with. And, and, and I think that there are a lot of people nowadays, uh, one of the reasons this church is declining across the board uh, I think has to do with the fact that the church has held itself uh, held, held itself up as an authority, um, and and uh, it has failed to give good answers. Mm -hmm. It has failed to deal with uh, things that would challenge it with a kind of humility. With, to be able to say, "Look, you, we, you may be right. We we may very well have gotten this completely wrong." Because I think if that kind of authenticity were apparent, um, there would be a lot fewer people who are just annoyed. <laughs> yeah. Right. That does that make any sense? Yeah. Can uh, can I share a, a slightly drunken confession? Uh, always, every single time. You don't even have to ask. Okay. I don't know if I've ever confessed this to you, Sarah, but. Uh, I love a church business meeting. Um, I've never loved it before the church that I'm in right now. Um, but ours get real salty and everybody has a lot of opinions. Um, and we will, I've literally looked across the church at someone and been like, and mouth, oh no, at something like <laughs> And then at the end been like, you know, like, I cannot believe you said that and then give them a hug. Like, it's, it's like, I, I feel like it is really rare and I don't know what the recipe is for it because I'm still, I've been in a lot of churches and I don't know what the recipe is for why, mean, why ours works, but we all, we get real salty in our meetings and at the end we're like, you know, we're, we just want the best thing for the community to win. I mean, and if I'm wrong, then that's fine, you know? I mean, I think, like, I think, I think, I think the recipe is, and, and I don't think it's necessarily specific to the church. 
Um, but I would say the recipe is more like, um, it's like a group of like-minded people who aren't just like, they don't just have like similar interests. Like they like the same movies, but they also have a, um, like, a, a, like, the same assumptions about what like truth and ethics and how you should conduct yourself, those sorts of things. Um, and without a, without any kind of, uh, power dynamic or hierarchy where they feel like they have to like compete against one another. I mean, like you, I think I see this in, in school, like in my master's programs too, where. Yeah. Like our divinity school had that. Yeah. We're all in it together. Exactly. Goal. Yeah. Um, it's just how do you how do you have that without without it being religion or a cult? <laughs> oh, and let's do a spinoff. This is going to be a two part series for us. Um, I'm I think this is going to air before the cults, right? We're going to talk about cults, Christian cults. Oh yeah, we're going to talk about some cults. I'm yeah. so pumped to talk about cults. I'm so excited! I love cults, and I don't mean that I love to be in them or I love the idea of them, but I love to study them. I would get really nerdy. Like if there was a special on cults, I would just cancel all of my plans and watch it. Like, so I'm very excited about cults. I do want to pitch this topic to the Twitter community and Facebook community. I want to hear what people have to say about that. How do we foster community in ways that allow us to resist um, systems of oppression in proactive and healthy ways and also foster community uh, and allow those that feel that they have been excluded to be sort of brought towards the middle and feel like this is their place. This is, this is how they're included, regardless of belief system. So that's something that I want us to throw out there on the Twitter, various social media platforms that we're on. Derek, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It was wonderful. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we just had a, such a blast today. Um, okay, if you're trying to find us and you don't know how you found us, uh, find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, and make sure to hit that subscribe button. You can also contact us on Twitter at Bible Bitches. You can check us out on Facebook on our fan page, Bible Bitches. Very redundant. Um, you can <laughs> email us on the Gmail account. We never check. Bible Bitches with an E. You know what, honestly, I've just started cutting that part out. Got it. I don't check it. Um, <laughs> I don't remember the password. No emails. All right. I don't remember the password. <laughs> okay, slide into our DMs. That's the only way you can contact us. Um, yeah. um, another big shout out to Derek for coming and hanging out with us tonight. Oh, and, Derek. oh, you're a saint for me. Uh, hey, um, thank you to for hosting us on, on your website. Yes. Engage gaze with a Z. Look with your eyes. Engage yeah. gaze. <laughs> also, um, we, lo we love you, um, Aaron, at Aaron Doodles for doing our artwork. We get, it's awesome. We love it. Follow his cartooning yeah. at Aaron Doodles. Definitely follow his cartoons. Um, on Twitter. And then also also a big shout out to uh Yo Eves um on Twitter, but it's Miss Eves and she actually just released some new music. She did. And yeah. she does intro and outro music. She is amazing. Okay. Hey bye guys. Next time we'll be back with Colts and shit. Bye. bye. bye.